Welcome to Entrepreneur Decoded, the show where you'll find real conversations with today's most successful entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from unforgettable personal stories to exact strategies they use on a daily basis. Here's your host, Simon Sander. Hey, this is Simon, and thank you so much for tuning in today. I don't take you for granted. I really appreciate you listening to this podcast. Today's featured guest is Matt Bodner. Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me on here, Simon. Matt was featured as Forbes 30 Under 30, called the Rising Restaurator Star by the National Restaurant Association and the Strategy Bro by Restaurant Hospitality Magazine. Matt is the creator and host of The Science of Success, a popular podcast about psychology and decision-making, and finally, a partner at Fresh Hospitality. Matt, tell us a bit more about yourself and fill in any blanks from the intro. Absolutely. So that was a, that was a great intro. And, you know, there's, there's two fundamental passions and interests that sort of drive me. And, you know, one of them is investing, the other is psychology, and they're very interrelated. And, you know, at Fresh Hospitality, where I'm a partner, it's it's an investment firm that invests across the food value spectrum. So we invest in and operate everything from farms to uh, things in the agricultural space to production facilities where we make things like hams, bacons, and sausages, down through restaurants. We, in, we invest in and operate a number of different restaurant concepts. Um, and then related investments in real estate, technology, and things like that associated with with the food sector. And, and out of that, I, you know, being an investor fundamentally, which has shaped so much of my thinking, I, I really started studying and going deep on, um, people like Warren Buffett, you know, the most successful investor of all time, people like Charlie Munger, who's his business partner, people like Ray Dalio, who's one of the founders of, or the founder of Bridgewater, which is the most successful hedge fund of all time. And, and, and I started studying these guys and out of that, and we can go deeper into it, but out of that came this this deep interest in psychology and how the world works and how people think and how to understand what's really happening in the world. And that's sort of what sprung into eventually my podcast, um, which which digs into all of those topics and, and sort of some of the science and data behind it. When you started your own podcast, Matt, uh, were there any other podcasters that uh, sorely focused on psychology and decision making? You know, there's, I'm sure there are sort of competitive podcasts and, and the, I call myself an accidental podcaster. And, and the reason is because I didn't actually set out to create a podcast. And, you know, as I said, my, my fundamental expertise is in the investing world and, and particularly investing primarily in brick and mortar sort of traditional businesses, things like farms, restaurants, real estate. Um, and so I had very little knowledge and expertise of the digital world and, the thing that really drove me to do that, I'd had a number of kitchen, what I would call a kitchen table conversations with uh, all kinds of people about things like psychology, decision making, you know, going deep into things like Robert Cialdini's book Influence and, and all of these topics. And eventually had a conversation like that with a, with a close friend of mine who at the time owned this sort of small science news website. And, and he floated the idea to me and essentially said, Hey, like, I love all this stuff that you're talking about. Let's take this and make it into a podcast. And, you know, I had, I was like, cool. Like I have no idea anything about podcasting, but I can talk about this stuff all day. 
And so we we partnered up, and this is sort of fall, kind of like late summer, early fall, twenty fifteen, and we, and we launched the podcast uh, that that fall. And through about the end of the year, we had maybe seven, eight thousand downloads cumulatively. And you know, I was pretty psyched. I didn't really have any sort of base baseline or, or or anything to compare that against. And I was like, cool, like you know, thousands of people around the around the world are, are listening to me talk about all this stuff that I'm really interested in. And then. Starting in January of 2016, we really hit this this massive growth curve and um, hit hit new and noteworthy and a bunch of other things. And and to date, we've we have we're just closing in on about 900,000 downloads, which I'm pretty psyched about. Um, and we should be hitting that hopefully in the next in the next week or two. Um, and so it's taken off. And, and again, I I didn't set out. You know, I, I unlike many people, I sort of let the universe pull me into becoming a podcaster. I didn't set out in a, in a dark room with a, with a notepad and craft my, my master strategy for how I was going to become the podcasting King. It was more like I, I pursued interests and, and opportunities and, and ended up uh, creating something that resonated with people. And that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am today. I cannot remember which interview it was, uh, but you were talking about your times in uh, Coleman Sachs. You were, you were having another day at the office and you came to a huge realization that it's not the best option to build wealth working at a day job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great story. And, and that was a, a watershed moment for me. And as, as you said, I worked at Goldman Sachs for a number of years out of college and eventually ended up leaving. And there was a couple factors that really led to, led to me to kind of get out of the financial world. One of them was reading the four hour work week, which, you know, isn't, I'm sure everybody, yeah, everybody, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Everybody yeah. loves that freaking book, man. I need yeah. to get Tim Ferriss yeah, same on the show. Here. Yeah. Um, and, but, but, you know, Reading the four work week, obviously huge impact, but the moment that it really hit me from a wealth standpoint was I was reading this article and I was a, this was at the time I was a first year analyst on, on the interest rate derivatives desk. And I was reading this article about one of the founders of Google and I forget which one it was, but it's whoever was CEO of Google at the time. It was either Larry Page or, or Sergey Brin. We'll just say, we'll just say Larry Page. Um, and it was basically, it was a sentence and it goes, Larry Page's salary as the CEO was a hundred thousand dollars. And I paused after reading that and, and being a first year analyst on wall street, like typically my salary was more than that. And then, so I was thinking to myself, like, well, you know, like I'm the man, right? Like I make more than the CEO of Google. Like I'm, I'm such a badass. And then the, the next, it was like comma. And then the next half of the sentence was Andy's worth, you know, $25 billion in Google stock. And it was just like this avalanche, like crashing down on me that was like, oh, you don't get wealthy by having a really big salary. Like You get wealthy by owning equity in something that builds value over time. And so that to me was was really the thing that that blew open the the door. And, and I realized that the the way to achieve wealth was actually to have ownership and equity and in, in what I was building and control my own destiny. Right. Later on, you started a quite interesting business, Cash for Gold. Uh, was that during your uh, Goldman Sachs times or later? Yes. So that was after Goldman Sachs, after I uh, moved to Nashville. Me and a, and a close buddy of mine had been kicking around just some different deals and, and looking at opportunities. And he actually stumbled across this Cash for Gold chain. And he, he, was, he was friends with one of the owners of it. 
And, and we looked at the numbers and the crazy thing about it was these guys were, I mean, they had no systems in their business, no processes. Like literally the first P and L was like a sheet of paper where they had handwritten like what their weekly sales and margins were. And the margins of the business were incredibly compelling actually. And, and I was young and, and greedy and didn't, you know, not very thoughtful. And we ended up creating this this chain of cash for gold stores and partnering up with those people that my friend had kind of connected with and for you know we built we built probably three or four locations and did all this stuff and eventually the business just ended up completely imploding part of it was just the timing of of gold prices we got into it there was there was a huge sort of uh, like bubble in gold. I don't know if it was like a bubble, but a huge ramp up in gold prices. And I want to say, I'd have to go look at the charts, but let's say like 2012, something around there. And right when we got into the business gold prices and it'd been a bull market in gold for like five years, right? Right. When we get into it, gold prices tipped and started going the other way. And that, that business makes, makes bigger and bigger margins as gold prices rise and the margins compress the opposite direction as gold prices fall. So that was a piece of it. But the real reason that it failed and, and this failure probably cost me, you know, 30, 40, maybe $50,000. I mean, it was a, a decent chunk that I invested in it. And the real reason it failed was because we, we got into a business partnership with, with the wrong people. Right. And we, we made some of the sort of classic mistakes that doom uh, a partnership to failure. We didn't understand our partners well enough. We didn't understand what their goals and objectives where we didn't do a good enough job of kind of vetting them out and understanding how they thought about the world. And, and it ended up, and, and, and honestly, I think a big piece of it too, and now I've, I've really shifted the way that I think about the world quite a bit, but I think there was almost, and this will sound sort of woo woo to your listeners, but I think there was almost a, a sort of a karmic element of it that it was just not a, it wasn't a feel good business. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't a business where you're helping people and like changing the world. It's a business where you're, it's just kind of a, uh, a dirty business. And I mean, it was, a, it, it was a business that I didn't feel good about being in. And I think in many ways that as well, kind of, there was some sort of subconscious pulling away from it that I think probably contributed to its ultimate demise. That's something I wonder about. Uh, people who run uh, kind of unethical businesses, such as casinos or kind of make money fast schemes, uh, how well do they sleep at night? Um, and it's something to think about. Matt, um, you made the list for 30 under 30 for Forbes. How old are you now? I'm actually 30 now. So I made the cutoff by my, my birthday is on January 1st, and I literally made the cutoff by one day. How did that happen? Um, it's something that took, it took, it was years in the making and, and, and I'll give you kind of the inside baseball to some degree and how I was able to get on the list. You know, I had set a goal for myself to be on the Forbes 30 under 30 list when I was probably 25, maybe 26. And, you know, I, I, I tried to figure out for years how I could get on it. And, and even at one point tried to hire a publicist to do it and all of this stuff. And, and the breakthrough sort of insight for me was I went to this conference and one of the speakers there was a former Forbes 30 under 30 person. And, and so I went to his seminar and it was, I, you know, his seminar was totally irrelevant to kind of what I was working on in my business, but I sat through the seminar and then at the end of it, I approached him and I was like, Hey, like great seminar. But what I really want to ask you about is how did you get on the 30 under 30 list? Like, what did you do? Like what, what, what's the strategy? What are the tactics? And you know, that alone, and, and I'll, t- I'll tell you what he told me, but like that alone is a pretty important lesson, which is, and one of the, the sort of mental models that I try to apply in my life again and again, which is if you want to do something, look at the people who've done it and 
either ask them how they've done it or just go and try to figure it out and copy what they've done, right? You don't, so many people sort of set out and try to reinvent the wheel. Oftentimes the best, the best strategy is just figure out someone who already has walked the path that you want to go down and, and borrow those lessons. And so his advice to me was pretty simple. It was basically, there's, there's two main factors to, to getting on the list. One is getting recommendations. And so you have to be nominated on the list, right? So getting nominations and recommendations from people who are former winners, right? Was one of them. And the other one was, uh, having, having people who were former winners put in a good word for you with the judges and the judging pool. And I had, I had sort of, there was, there were two people in particular that were, on the periphery kind of, of my, of my network. And, and, you know, they were sort of people that I might've interacted with once or twice, but didn't really have close relationships with, but I kind of connected with each of them and, and talked to them and told them I was interested in getting on the list and asked if they had any advice or, you know, what, what kind of, you know, what they could do or what they might be willing to help out with. And both of them were very generous and offered to nominate me. And one of them ended up, you know, talking to some of the people and putting in a good word for me and, and really helped me kind of get, uh, you know, get on the list eventually. And, and the, one other thing I'll throw out there is, you know, that's, that's sort of the inside baseball of how to do it is find people who've done it, ask them, connect with them, talk to them and, and see, you know, if they can help you out in the process. But the other piece is you have to be the, the sort of prerequisite for that to even be the case is you have to be at least doing something that is interesting enough to kind of get put on the list to begin with. I always thought it was about revenue. Um, did they check your revenue at all? No. So the, the, the interesting thing about 30 under 30 and, and you know, the, it's, it's actually not 30 people, right? And I don't, you, you may know that, but it's actually more than that because it's 30 under 30 and they do it by industry category. So it actually ends up being a couple hundred people cause they have different industries. So they have, I was, I was on it. Like I said, I invest primarily in the food world. So I was actually in the food list, food 30 under 30. Um, they all, they publish them all at the same time. So they have lists for everything from education to science and technology to, um, you know, media companies. And so it varies, right? Like some of the fields are almost nonprofit esque fields. Like they have a science field, they have an education field. And so it's, I definitely think, I mean, I don't, I don't think revenue is, is, a, is necessarily a determining factor. I think in maybe in some of the categories, if you, if you have a lot of revenue, it can be an important deciding factor. And I did have to share some financial information with them and talk to them about the size of our company and the valuation and some of the other stuff that we're working on. So I don't know how much that factored into their decision-making. Um, but you know, I don't know that it's in every case is a determining factor. The famous uh, marketer and Neil Patel from uh, Kissmetrics and Crazy Egg and uh, Quicksprout.com, uh, he made the list as a top 100 entrepreneur under the age of 30 by President Obama. And that was solely based on revenue and uh, nothing else really seemed to matter. Uh, Matt, tell me, why did you want to make that list in the first place? You know, I mean, honestly, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said it was if, if ego and, and, you know, wasn't a piece of it. And, and in many ways that it was just a goal that I'd kind of set for myself. You know, I saw the list. I remember the first I, I, I picked up, I was like I said, I was probably like 25 or 26. I picked up a randomly a copy of Forbes and it happened to be the 30 under 30 issue. And I was like thinking to myself, and this is something that that I I find myself thinking a lot. But it, and, it, and it harkens back to something that Steve Jobs has said, which is like. It, everything or in and I'll 
explain how these are sort of interrelated, but everything around you, right? Everything in the world was built by a human, right? Like was, was an idea in someone's mind that was built. The microphone that I'm talking into, the computer that I have, like the desk that I'm sitting at, everything in our world was constructed by a human mind and built by somebody. And that somebody is no smarter than you. They're no better than you. And if you did it, you can get there. And so whenever I see something like that, I kind of think to myself like, well, why can't I be on that list? Right. And so then I want to figure out like, what do I need to do to be able to be on that list? And I set out not only kind of trying to build, you know, build up my own sort of portfolio of things that I was doing so that I would, would have enough kind of cachet to be on the list, but also set out trying to study the people who'd been on it and figure out what do I need to do to emulate those people? And what do I need to do to appeal to the, the, you know, the nomination panel and all of this stuff so that I could, could get on it. But I mean, a part of it too, is just set an audacious goal and, and see if you can hit it. You know, part of the, the groundwork that I laid to, to get on that list was cultivating a lot of other kind of PR and, and, and brand presence for, for fresh hospitality, which has paid dividends in a bunch of other things we've been doing. And even if I hadn't made the list, like the reason the big driving factor behind doing all of that, laying all that groundwork was to, to build sort of a portfolio and a base to, to be able to be on the list. But even if I'd missed it, like all of that other stuff would have been really beneficial. And it's kind of, it's the idea of, you know, shoot for the moon. And and if you miss, you'll still land among the stars. Matt, uh, give us an example besides Forbes 30 under 30, how you went after a goal and you were surprised that you were able to achieve it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're really strict yourself uh, when it comes to executing and pursuing your goals. No, you're totally right. And, 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 and the funny thing is I set myself like hyper aggressive goals and I, sometimes they're too aggressive and, and I end up falling short of them to, you know, too large of a degree. And, and, and going back to myself and thinking like, maybe I shouldn't have set such an aggressive goal. Um, and, and I think honestly that the Forbes 130 example is a good example of one that was kind of a stretch goal that I was able to hit. Literally, like I said, I made it by one day. Like, so I was, I, that was my last shot. I tried really hard the year before to get on it and didn't make it. And I was really disappointed. And so, you know, this, this was like the final chance and I, and I scraped by by a single day. Um, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's something I think about a lot. And I, I am, I'm very hard on myself and, and set very aggressive goals for myself. And, um, you know, I mean, and, and I don't always meet them and I'll give you another example of a of sort of failing to meet one of those goals. Like I had set a goal for myself three years ago that I had a company that was doing probably a million and a half dollars in revenue. And I said, I wanted to be a hundred million dollar business in three years, which is insane. Right. And if it's not a, if it's not like a Silicon Valley startup, it's not going to get there. And I pushed really aggressively and it, and it was a thought exercise basically to figure out what would need to happen for this business to be capable of getting to that goal. Right. And, and that helped me restructure the business in many ways. I spun out a whole division of the company, refocused it on a different product segment, um, you know, got, got really aggressive about growing it and, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't get to even close to that, right? Like the company today probably does $4 million in revenue and, and that's not a bad outcome. Like that's still pretty solid growth, but I still want it to be a hundred million dollar company. And actually to that effect, I'm, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm about to execute on is, is bringing in somebody who's, uh, a, a new CEO of the company that's going to replace me that I think can push it even further to the next level and, and really make it become, uh, a really badass, hyper successful business. 
let's say that you set yourself a big goal, whether it's a revenue goal or a personal habit you want to pursue, and then you fall short. You don't achieve the goal in hand. Do you beat yourself up or what goes through your head? You know, that's something that I've been exploring a lot. And, and this comes back to sort of doing a lot of emotional work. And, and that's something that I've been digging into recently on, on my podcast as well is like talking to some people who are really experts at understanding your emotions and, and dealing with perfectionism, which in some ways really dovetails a lot with what we're talking about. And the transition I've been trying to figure out is, is our, their, their high expectations are kind of a double-edged sword, right? And in, in one way, they sort of push you to the next level, but in another way, they can cultivate unhappiness and they can they can pull you away from self-acceptance, which is is one of the roots of of cultivating a kind of a happy state of being all the time. And and that's a that's kind of a tension that I personally have been working with. And, and I don't know that I have all the answers to it necessarily. A really good book about that, that kind of tension and, and I mean, we're getting into some interesting kind of inter- intersections with things like Buddhism and the whole idea of, you know, should your should you be attached to outcomes that take place in the world? Right. If you're too detached and you sort of just completely go with the flow in some ways, like you may never achieve anything. Right. And but you may be totally content and happy. The flip side is if you're completely attached to outcomes that if fundamentally are completely outside of your control because really everything except for your reaction to what happens is outside of your control. You're setting yourself up for, for some sort of failure because your happiness and your self, your identity itself are built upon an incredibly fragile foundation essentially made of sand, right? Could be, could melt away instantaneously. And so a book that I read last year that helps kind of break down and think about the dichotomy of how do you strive for achievement, but at the same time, live in a place where your day-to-day happiness isn't anchored to whether or not you achieve those things is the book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind by Vishen Lakhiani. Um, he's a super sharp dude. He's the founder of Mind Valley and, and has, has done really well. Um, and that book to me speaks to the cultivating the balance between those two poles, because I think that it's something that every entrepreneur eventually, I think, will come to that sort of place, which is how much do I how much do I focus on kind of surrender and acceptance versus achievement? I have to check out this book. Uh, I struggle with that. And I believe a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the show might have the same challenges. Something I always want to want to go over in this podcast, this growth and acquiring new customers. Uh, there's two ways to go. We could talk about uh, Fresh Hospitality, where you are a partner, or we could focus on your consulting business and podcast. Um, what do you think is the best way to go? Yeah, absolutely. I think let's let's drill down on the podcast, and I'm more than happy to kind of talk to you about some of the things we've done and some of the strategies we've used to to build audience. And honestly, I'd love to Uh, to hear some of your thoughts as well about maybe strategies that have been successful for you. Matt, you said that you were an accidental podcaster, uh, which means that you probably didn't have a clear idea who's your target audience, uh, what kind of content to produce, uh, where do you want to be in six months, how to monetize, uh, stuff like that. You jumped in hit first. Oh, so one of the lessons from that actually was, and, and just, yes, you're right. We, we totally jumped in and had no idea what we were doing, but what I, one of the big lessons from that, and, and this is a lesson that, when you study successful marketers, at least it's a lesson I've seen re- recur again and again and again, which is 
no, very, very few people build an audience from scratch, right? Most audiences are kind of launched off of existing audiences or cobbled together from existing, from existing audiences. And so one of the things that, that was very successful about our launch that helped us get started, as I said, was I launched on my friend's website, right? My buddy had this science news website. Um, it's still around. He's actually not affiliated with it anymore. Um, but we launched, I mean, it's not a huge website, right? It doesn't have massive traffic numbers or anything, but it had kind of a base level of, of, of traffic and a base audience. And so when we launched in partnership on his site, every episode would get posted up there and it would go on the front page of the site and it would drive traffic and listenership. And so that really helped launching with somebody in partnership with someone who had an audience to some degree was a huge component in, in building the initial base listenership of, of the podcast. And now there's many things we've done since then to kind of cultivate and build and, and grow our audience even further as well. And I'm happy to dig into those. Yeah, sure. Did your friend uh, send out an email newsletter to his uh, email list to promote you or was it social media or what was the exact process? So honestly, they didn't do, a, he didn't do, it was him and a couple, you know, I'm thinking the people in his company, but they didn't do a great job promoting it. And I was actually pushing on them to promote it more. And part of it was, I think my friend was kind of had one foot out the door and he ended up selling the company. Maybe like, you know, I said, we, we launched sort of fall 2015. He sold it in March of 2016. And as part of our agreement, he, I had a carve out that if he left the company, I could take the podcast over just for myself. And so I ended up having to do that a couple months in with very little knowledge of what I was doing. And, and I had to rebuild the entire back end of the podcast. And, and fortunately now I've got an incredible system and process with including, you know, a uh, virtual assistant and, and all kinds of different components that streamline pretty much everything that happens on the back end and, and let me focus on the really core things, which are, which are doing the interviews and, and, you know, kind of creating the content itself. Um, but I had to reinvent some of my audience acquisition strategies after that, and I'm happy to kind of share with you. Yeah, sure. Get into that. I think that would be really beneficial, not just to podcasters, but everybody who is trying to build an audience. Yeah, and so it goes back to the same fundamental premise, right, which is I want to try and figure out how can I leverage other people's audiences to to build my audience. And so one of the pieces, before we before we go down that rabbit hole, just again, it goes back to almost the same thing I was talking about with the with the Forbes list. You have to have good content to begin with, right? That's a prerequisite. And and good content will build over time. And and the more good content you put out, the more evergreen content you put out, people will slowly kind of gravitate to that. And if you hit a big enough threshold, you know, like it's like a snowball rolling downhill. If you if you get massive you can continue to incrementally add massive numbers, but you have to start out with good content. So good content's the prerequisite. Once you have that, then some of these strategies start to apply. And so there's, I'd say there's two or three core strategies that we pursue now to kind of build audience. One of them is to go on other shows and and talk about it, right? So that's part of the reason. I mean, you you reached out and 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 uh, and offered to have me come on as a guest, which I was super excited about. But you know, I do. I'm, I'm doing like three different podcasts this week that are other than sort of my interview. And so I'm always trying to get out in front of people's audiences who are relevant, interesting, um, you know, have, have great audiences and, and have good podcasts and, and get on there and share my story and what I'm up to, because hopefully that will kind of key in some of the people listening to, to check out what we're up to as well. Um, the second strategy, which we've used is, Thinking about, and, and this is sort of a multi-tiered strategy, but thinking about 
podcasting as a content medium, how can we repurpose that content into different mediums? And so that means going, doing everything from taking a podcast and even just layering it onto a, a YouTube video with a, with a static image, a little bit of graphic elements to kind of spice it up and putting things out on YouTube as well. That's, that's a relatively new strategy that we've, that we've rolled out, but we think in the next probably eight, you know, let's say six to 18 months, uh, we think YouTube is going to continue to become uh, a more and more core part of our strategy. And, and because it's so much more discoverable and, and measurable, we may eventually sort of move YouTube to becoming the primary outlet for our content because iTunes is a black box, right? It's very hard to to get metrics out of them. Like you can't get how many subscribers you have. It's, it's, it's very challenging. And so taking our sort of static audio content, spicing it up with a little bit of animation and putting it on YouTube – the flip side of that is taking static audio content, getting it transcribed, and then taking those articles, taking those transcriptions and pulling out nuggets and turning those into media pitches and articles. And so the next phase that we do is we take we take our episodes, we we sort of strip down what you know what that could be into a, a 1500 word article or whatever it is, and we've developed a number of content partnerships that we feed those articles into. We also uh, we sort of take some of our articles and we'll pitch them to different publications. So we'll pitch them to places like Inc., places like Entrepreneur. We had an article a couple months ago that got to the the front page of Entrepreneur, and it was actually the second most uh, viewed article that month. And so that was that was a big win for us. It was this really cool. Uh, it, we we spun it out of our episode with this guy named Chris Voss, who is an FBI hostage negotiator, and it was like top negotiating tactic. Damn, I read that. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's an he's an awesome dude. And so we took his interview, like distilled it into this article and and pitched it to entrepreneur, ended up getting on there, ended up hitting the front page and drove thousands and thousands of downloads uh, of the podcast. And so that's, you know, that's kind of one example. And then we also we have sort of a fallback. So if if our content doesn't get picked up either by content partners or media outlets, we've, we've launched a blog as well that will kind of put it on our blog as a fallback. And so our blog starts to sort of slowly get populated with, with written content that's also all housed within the Science of Success website and helps build SEO, helps build you know organic search and all those components. So the goal of that is how can we take content and, and, and just take one piece of audio content and turn it into video, turn it into, turn it into written content, turn it into things that can be shared across various different platforms that all build, uh, you know, audience and, and SEO, et cetera. Before we get into the goal of your podcast and the revenue, I want to expand on those strategies a bit because I think you mentioned so many golden nuggets that have never been mentioned anywhere. Uh, first, you talked about reaching out to podcasters and uh, being on shows like uh, this one and hopefully getting a few listeners from my audience to uh, to yours. Uh, so at this point, do you reach out to podcasters? Because I reached out to you because uh, of John's interview from Fire, but to uh, to you usually have a system in place where you reach out to, I don't know, 20, 30 shows a week, or you're at this point uh, where people come to you mostly? It's a mix of both. And and the bigger the, you know, as I said, it's like a snowball rolling downhill, right? It starts with one flake and two flakes and it gets bigger and bigger. So more and more we have inbound opportunities coming to me, like people asking me to be on their shows, people asking to feature. I've gotten in the last month, I've had three people reach out and ask to feature me in a book that they're writing, which I which is 
you know, amazing and, you know, no idea what, what that will manifest into, but it's interesting, right? And, and having these inbound opportunities is, is great, but you have to kind of get the snowball rolling before these opportunities percolate. So we also have a very aggressive outreach strategy. Uh, I have a guy who's, who's my, I, he's my producer on the show and he has, he has a couple things that he helps out with the two main things one is guest outreach and so we have a guest outreach template that we use he has a list of you know all kinds of guests and I'm talking about everything from shooting from this you know shooting for the stars trying to get you know people like Tim Ferriss Tony Robbins etc all the way down to uh, you know a book that I read and I'm like yo this guy's awesome like let's get him on the show um and we we're outreaching to people constantly following up with them constantly trying to get them on similar to you know the our sort of initial interaction the flip side is he also pitches me as a guest on all kinds of different shows and even pitches blog pitches guest posts to you know different blogs and all kinds of stuff so yeah there's a there's a very robust component of of outreach there and i mean it, you're not going to hit every time right like we've gotten turned down from all kinds of places but the the things that do land end up building more and more and more to the point where you kind of get enough credibility that you can really start to to level up again and again and start to build very material traction. A lot of us uh, get hundreds and hundreds of emails every single week. Uh, Entrepreneur Decoded Podcast, um, we are not anywhere as big as John from EO Fire or, or Andrew from Mixergy or James Altucher or Tim Ferriss, but still we get hundreds of emails every week from uh, from unknown entrepreneurs who want to be on the show. And uh, a lot of those pitches are really poorly written, copy-pasted probably uh, to another 100 other podcasts, and they end up in my delete box right away. How do you pitch to other podcasts? So my pitch is completely crafted using the principles of influence from from Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. And and it starts out we we hammer home the social proof and the authority bias right so it starts out with all of the stats and the data about the podcast and we say you know number one new and noteworthy podcast nine hundred thousand downloads you know the you know blah 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 and then we go into uh, then we go into we kind of hit the social proof some more and we talk about previous guests include the following people and we'll tailor that specifically to whoever we're pitching. So if they're, you know, we, we have a pretty wide range of guests, everything from like, you know, as I said, hostage negotiators, neuroscientists, astronauts, um, like very varied kind of crew, but you know, they they fall into different buckets. So if we're pitching somebody that's sort of more of an entrepreneurial type person, we'll, we'll list guests that are up their wheelhouse, people like Neil Patel, et cetera. If we're pitching somebody that's more, uh, neuroscience related or psychology related, we'll throw in names like Phil Zimbardo and people like that. Like people, so we, we try to tailor the social proof to say, you know, to, to trigger the subconscious thing that, Hey, your peers and even people who are, you know, in some cases kind of have a bigger following than you have been on the show in the past. Like, you know, the, the, the natural implication of that is like, and you should too, right? From there, we kind of talk about, um, you know, what we might have a quick, what, like kind of a quick tidbit about what we think it could talk about. And then we give a quick thing that's like, let us know if you're interested and we can, we can give some times to, to get something scheduled. But it, the key is we try to leverage all of the, like all of the credibility, all the social proof, all the authority that we can and say, you know, we'd love to get your message in front of our rapidly growing audience and, and, you know, all of your peers are doing very similar things and et cetera, and try to trigger as many psychological biases as possible to get people to get on board. Do you use a similar system and process when your producer pitches you to be on other shows? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's essentially a modified version of the same pitch template. It's slightly different and 
we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw some stuff in there where we'll suggest potential topics that I can talk about and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a very similar, um, thing where we we're doing the same thing, leveraging the same kind of social biases and, and trying to leverage psychology to make it effective. You mentioned YouTube, uh, and uh, repurposing your content there. I've been thinking about that. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to pull the trigger to, uh, uh, put all my podcast episodes uh, to YouTube as well. Probably a static image uh, on the background. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that because I've talked with a lot of diff- different podcasters. There's a lot of pros and cons to that. Uh, how successful have you been with uh, YouTube, Matt? So, and as I said, it's a relatively new portion of our strategy. We basically started out probably two months ago and said, hey, let's just put our whole back catalog, back catalog on YouTube. And that took a little bit of time, right? We have we have kind of an in-house graphic designer at, at one of my other companies that we use to turn everything into video content, get it all uploaded, et cetera. And we probably got everything up there about a month ago. And so it's still very new. And like I said, we have done virtually nothing to market at this point, though I think it will become something where we're going to continually invest more time and energy in doing YouTube-specific content, uh, you know, really tailoring to that platform and and doing a lot more on there just without without doing anything we've you know our our videos getting a couple hundred views and we've i think we've got like 50 subscribers or something but it's building every week right and and i i was talking to a guy who who's a youtube expert and i'm trying to remember his name it was at a conference probably six eight months ago and and one of the things he told me is that being successful on youtube is like compound interest so little tiny tweaks in your metadata, little tiny tweaks in your, you know, in your videos and making sure all your videos are linked together and all this stuff. He said the way that YouTube channels become successful is they, they, they make these little tweaks that just incrementally continue to build and build and build and build and build. And so our goal is to, to kind of build all those components of compound interest into the, the YouTube channel early on so that once it gets bigger and bigger, you reap those rewards, right? And, and I'm sure, you're probably familiar with if you look at some of the math of compound interest, right? If you look at something compounding for the first 10 or 20 years, it doesn't really look that exciting. But then once you get further out there and I'm not saying YouTube's going to be like the same sort of time horizon, right? But it's the same concept. Like once compounding is applied to a bigger and a bigger base, it's shocking how effective it is. And, and I'll give you a really good example of somebody who's one of the most prolific and successful YouTubers, Casey Neistat. He, you know, I was looking at, I started following Casey Neistat probably about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And and he, at the time, I think he had just put out a video that was like 3 million subscribers. And then a couple months later, he put out a video that was like 4 million subscribers. And then a couple months later, he put out a video that was 5 million. You know, and now I just checked his channel the other day and he has almost, he's like over 7 million subscribers, right? And it took him years to get the first million. And then it took him like six months to get the second million. It took him like three or four months to get the, the third million. And then it took him like two months to get the fourth million. Right. And it's like in the last six months, he's gone from in the last you know six months, he's gone from like five to seven million. And so it's crazy. Once you get to those bigger numbers, it really compounds really, really quickly. Yeah. Casey seems like an interesting guy. He puts out a lot of freaking content that works his uh, face off. Uh, and you're right. In the beginning, the growth was uh, really slow, but now his, uh, his channel is really growing and he's doing really well. To wrap up this talk about growth uh, and podcast and uh, everything we've covered, uh, what's the purpose behind your podcast and what is the revenue model? So as, as I talked about at the beginning, right, I'm fundamentally an investor and, and, and fresh hospitality and the whole kind of investment world is my primary source of income. And to me, the podcast started out 
as I sort of told the story accidentally, right? And so I didn't set out to become a podcaster to to make money from doing it. Um, that said, like, and, and to that end, we currently, we haven't monetized it in the sense of running uh, ads or anything like that. We definitely will at some point and, and you know, I want it to be the right advertisers at the right time, et cetera. Um, I'm kind of, to date, I've been following the the Tim Ferriss advice of, wait as long as possible to monetize because once you monetize, it does create some sort of friction on, on audience acquisition probably not a ton of friction, honestly, but, um, you know, what my number one goal right now is, is to continue to build audience. And so if I don't need to monetize because my other business is, is taking care of me, um, I'm going to push that out as long as I can until I can build as big enough, as big an audience as possible for when I do monetize it. But to me, the, you know, the, and this is going to sound again, a little bit woo woo, but like I was pulled into the podcast by, by accident, right. Or by the universe or whatever you want to call it. And so to me, I view it t- sort of to date as almost like a gift back to the universe. Like, and I, you know, it's crazy. And I'm sure you have this experience too. Is like, you get these e- like emails from people all around the world that, that like it had this huge impact on their life. And it's crazy. You know, I just got the other day, I just got a handwritten letter from this woman in Norway about how the podcast was, had like changed her life and done all this stuff. And it's insane to think about the fact that I've never met these people. I've never, you know, done anything. And yet they're, they're listening to me from all around the globe and like helping do something positive in the world. And so it's almost like my karmic payback for the cash for gold business um, to be doing something like this, but I will monetize it. And, and, you know, I'm, I probably would, I probably won't do some stuff like info products and other things. I'd I'd probably lean towards just basic sponsorship and, and a few other kind of, you know, simple, simple forms of monetization that wouldn't be too intrusive. Matt, uh, congrats on the growth and success on your podcast. I'm, I'm really happy it's going well and uh, you're going to do wonders with it, I know. I've just realized we've been talking for 45 minutes and there's still some things I want to cover. So I have a feeling it's going to be the longest Entrepreneur Decoded podcast episode ever. Matt, uh, I want to switch gears, like I said, um, and I want to understand what do you do daily to be successful. So let's start with the morning routine. Do you have a strict morning routine? Yeah, I mean, ritual and routine is is everything. And I think that, you know, I'm sure, and then your podcast definitely bears this out, right? Really successful people continually follow routines. And and that doesn't mean that, like, I, I modify and tweak my routine and I add and subtract things and see sort of what's working. But my routine has a co- sort of several kind of fundamental components. And they're borrowed from people like Josh Waitzkin, who is a like a 12 time national chess champion and a two time world champion Tai Chi fighter. Incredibly sharp dude, you know, so knowledgeable about performance psychology, how to become and perform at a literally world champion, world class level in multiple different fields and activities. And my routine looks something like this. And I'll actually start at the end of the day and then go into the next day because that's, I think, what what sort of sets things uh, in motion and is super important. So ending the day with a question or a, a problem that you have and just sort of planting that seed of, you know, how can I deal with X challenge or what can I do to 10X my revenue or what can I do to overcome this particular obstacle that I have? And then 
you let go of that question, right? You, you write it down, you say it out loud, whatever it is, and then you, you step away from your work. You go spend time with your family, you go hang out with friends, play video games, watch TV, whatever it, it is your thing that you do to kind of let go. <clears throat> from there, you go to sleep as normal, get up the next morning, before you check email, right, and I think a lot of people sort of advocate this, before you check your email, before you do anything, what I typically do is when I get up, I meditate immediately, in many cases, I'll literally meditate in bed even to just to make sure that I get it in because if I don't get it in first thing in the morning, it's it oftentimes it just doesn't happen. And meditation is is something that is incredibly backed by research, you know, so research validated. And one of the most powerful things you can do to improve your your health and well-being and effectiveness. And so I meditate and then I get up and I journal for 15 or 20 minutes on that question. And there's a ton of neuroscience and, and, and psychology behind why this works. But essentially your subconscious is processing that question the whole time. And when you consciously turn your attention away from it, you're actually giving the subconscious, which is a much deeper and richer kind of processing machine, the ability to go to work on that problem. When you step back to it after having slept, after having focused on something else and after having meditated and kind of supercharged your mind, you can bring an incredible new focus and energy to that and oftentimes come up with novel insights and ideas that can help you break through that challenge. So that's that's kind of the schedule and, and there's a few other pieces of it. But basically at the end of the day, positive question, you know, let go of it and and have some downtime, have some time to recharge. Come back to it, meditate first thing in the morning get up, journal about that challenge. And then from there, I try to set out a, you know, a, a sort of most important task every day. And the, and I'll have, I have sort of a ritual every Sunday where I set out and, and go through my whole week and say, what's the one thing I want to accomplish every day, each day specifically. So like, what are this one thing I want to accomplish on Wednesday, right? What's the one thing I want to accomplish each day that if I just accomplish that, it'll be a win. Right. And so I, I meditate, I do my journal and then I accomplish my most important task and then I check my email and then I get sucked into the, the chaos of the day. And I, and I try to schedule I'll throw one of the little thing. I know we're crazy long on time here, but, um, I try to schedule my day so that I have no meetings before noon every day. And then I have all my meetings from noon to, to like four or five in the afternoon. And that's because mornings to me is sort of productive, creative time to read, time to think, time to execute on those big proactive things that are going to build value and not get sucked into the whirlwind of email and everything else. And what time are you done with your day? Uh, it, it varies. You know, today, for example, I'll probably be done with my day at 7 p.m. Um, the, you know, I, I do a lot of interviews and stuff in the evenings when I'm back at my kind of home studio. Um, but I mean, a lot of days will finish around five or six, I mean, sort of typical time. And then I'll spend some time with my wife, et cetera. I really like the idea of accomplishing at least one thing during your day that will get you closer to your goals. Uh, there's a really great book that I cannot recommend enough. Uh, it's called The One Thing, actually. And uh, I think it was by Gary V. Keller. I'm going to put it to the show notes. And it goes over the same concept that every day you should accomplish at least one thing that will get closer to your dreams and goals. Um, so your day will be a success. Matt, uh, before we say goodbye and wrap up, uh, do you have any final thoughts or final, final guidance for the audience? It would be to focus on becoming a better thinker. Focus on your ability to make decisions more effectively. Because if you can understand reality and think better, 
it's going to cascade through everything in your life and it's going to transform the way that you deal and interact with everything. So invest in that knowledge, invest in becoming someone who makes better decisions and who understands reality at a deeper level. 100%. Thank you for that. Uh, if anyone wants to get the show notes for this episode, everything we talked about, uh, all the links, resources, stuff like that, head over to entrepreneurdecoded.com. Matt Bodner, thank you so much for coming in. Simon, thank you so much for having me on here. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneur Decoded. For killer resources and free content, go to entrepreneurdecoded.com.